Uh, we're turning uh, to the book of Joel, first of all tonight. It's pretty similar to last week in that uh, we will be uh, fairly rapidly be going through the, the minor prophets, and it will be handy if you've got a copy of the scriptures with you. There's plenty of them at the back if you wish to have them or indicate, and somebody will deliver it to you. Joel chapter 1. Uh, I did hear a story, actually, um, about someone who gave out a reference like this, and uh, it seemed to take just a little while longer than normal uh, for people to be able to find uh, one of these minor prophets. And uh, the retort that the guy made, I don't know if he was a businessman or not, but he'd sa- he said anyway that he had never heard of such a major turnover for a minor prophet. (laughs) So uh, hopefully there's not too much of uh, turning over to find Joel. So um, the whole point about looking at these uh, minor prophets tonight is to try and capture the fact that um, although they're called that, minor prophets, uh, that doesn't mean to say that their message in any sense at all is a minor message. It's not on a minor key. You know, it's a, it's a major message that every single one of them has to bring to us. They're, they're just called this because um, their, their books are shorter uh, than uh, Jeremiah and uh, Ezekiel and, and Daniel. And, and the, the main points that they're really trying to convey to us, significant major points, um, are focusing on challenging and rebuking the people for their shortcomings and for their sin. And on the other hand, they also bring a sense of hope and of restoration to the people as well. So these, these, these two themes you will see as strands that run through the majority of these small books that uh, conclude uh, our New Testament. And it's important for us to take the tone Uh, and to take the emphasis of these prophets to our hearts today as well. That the Lord speaks into our hearts sometimes to challenge and to rebuke us for attitudes and for actions and behavior. And yet, on the other hand, he does hold out hope uh, and and restoration. So let's come to the book of Joel and just make a few comments uh, about this. Now, uh, these, these are, uh, the book of Joel's written prior to the exile. And you can see the kind of rough outline thing there. Uh, the point I'd like to make, first of all, from chapter 1, verse 4, is that it's written against the background of a national calamity. And the calamity is, a, is one that has been induced by locusts. The crops have been devastated by locusts, a little bit like the plague uh, in Egypt. And this imagery of the, the land and the locust is actually used to convey uh, a message that Joel brings to the people. And so in particular, if you look over um, uh, to chapter 2 um, and verse number 25, he says to the people, after talking uh, a message of rebuke and challenge, he says, I will repay you or I will restore unto you the years that the locusts have eaten. 
And so what he's really saying to them, he says, it's not just the crops that have been eaten up. In a sense, your lives have, have been devoured. You've, you've wasted years. Years that should have been given over to the service of the Lord and fulfilling his commandments. And for years, they've just been eaten up and destroyed. And he holds out this hope to them. You might be looking at your wasted years and saying, well, you know, I have real regrets over these things. And, and who can ever bring them back? And of course, there is a sense that that's true. But what God says to the people, and he says to maybe some of us who are here tonight with feelings of, re- of regret, and that with perhaps wasted years, God says to us, I can restore unto you the years that the locusts have eaten. And that is true if our response is correct. Now, he talks about the kind of response that he's looking for uh, back over uh, in chapter 2 and verse number 12. Even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart, with fasting, with weeping and mourning. Rend your heart and not your garments and return to the Lord your God for he's gracious and compassionate. These people knew how to put on a religious show and it looked so dramatic and so sincere and yet Joel knows that it's superficial and that they, they, they tear their clothes in a dramatic show of public repentance. And yet he says, that's not, that's not any good. That's no use. Don't just tear your clothes. You need to tear your heart to show that there is a genuine change in your attitude towards your sin. And if you do that, have this real hope that God, verse 13, is slow to anger. He's abounding in love and he will relent from sending calamity. He will restore the years that the locusts have eaten. Now, what a challenge to us. Again, superficial Christian living. Rend your hearts and not just your garments. The second thing that Joel emphasizes, uh, you'll see this phrase comes up a number of times throughout the book, is the the phrase, the day of the Lord. Now, um, I'd like to point out uh, chapter 2. And verse number 28 in that regard. Because this passage is is quoted in Peter's famous sermon on the day of Pentecost. The first great Christian sermon ever preached. uh, Recorded in Acts chapter 2 when 3,000 people were converted. And this is where he preached from. Joel chapter 2. You remember the people were saying, what's going on here? What's this phenomenon? These people have been drinking. And he says, no, no. It's only nine in the morning. This is what was said by the prophet Joel. And here's what he records. I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your old men will dream dreams. Your young men will see visions. Even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days. That's what God did. He poured out the spirit of God and who came on the day of Pentecost to indwell his church. The prophecy, however, goes even beyond the day of Pentecost, 
where it says in verse 31, the sun will be turned to darkness, the moon to blood, before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. I mean, that didn't happen in Acts chapter 2. It will still happen. And here's a wonderful verse in verse 32, quoted again in our New Testaments. And everyone, whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Before that great and dreadful day of the Lord, which is coming, we need to call upon the name of the Lord to be saved. That's the gospel claim. Now let's turn over to the book of Amos. Amos again, prophesying round about the same kind of time. Uh, he gives a bit of biographical detail about himself in chapter 1, verse 1, the words of Amos, one of the shepherds or one of the herdsmen uh, of Tekoa. Um, and, you know, the people who listened to him, you know, they, they took this point up, you know, and they had something to say about Amos. He had a difficult time. Uh, he wasn't accepted. Uh, he was criticized. And if it wasn't the fact that God had called him, I'm sure he would have given up. So, for instance, if you, if you go over to chapter 7, and here is Amos answering another man who says that he is a priest. And uh, in verse 14, Amos answered Amaziah. And this is what he says. Uh, I was neither a prophet, uh, nor a prophet's son, but I was a shepherd. And I also took care of sycamore fig trees. But the Lord took me from tending the flock, and he said to me, Go and prophesy to my people Israel. Now then, hear the word of the Lord. As far as his kind of ancestry was concerned, you know, uh, he, he, he didn't come from a line of preachers. You know, he wasn't a prophet or he wasn't even the son of a prophet. He didn't go to the schools or colleges. But what he did have, he had a call from God. And God put his finger on this man's heart and he called him from what he was doing. And he said, go and speak to my people. And that sense of calling was what sustained Amos. Now, just to give you an idea of the kind of criticism and opposition at a personal nature that he came in from, if you just back up in chapter 7 to verse 10. Amaziah, the priest of Bethel, sent a message to Jeroboam, the king of Israel. Amos is raising a conspiracy against you in the very heart of Israel. And the land cannot bear all his words. For this is what Amos is saying. Jeroboam will die by the sword. Israel will surely go into exile, away from their native land. Then Amaziah said to Amos, Get out, you seer. Go back to the land of Judah. Earn your bread there. Do your prophesying there. Don't prophesy any more at Bethel because this is the king's sanctuary. You know, get out. Go back home. We don't want you up here. You're raising a conspiracy. And the, the priest and the king are against him. And yet, as I've just shown, he answers and said, God called me. And I'm going to keep on delivering this message. No matter who criticizes, this is the word of the Lord. What, a, what a, again, another challenging message for us. You know, our message today is not a popular one. The gospel of Christ 
is not popular. Talking about people's sin and their need for a saviour and what the standards of righteousness are. It's not popular sometimes even to Christians. Never mind to people who are lost in their sin. To hear the word of the Lord proclaimed. Yet we have to be true and loyal and committed as the prophets were. God has called us to deliver his word. Another point I'd like to make before we move on from the book of Amos is from chapter 3. He's delivering this, of course, to the people of Israel. And this is what he says in verse number 2. You only have I chosen of all the families of the earth. Therefore, I will punish you for all your sins. Now, that just seems rather unusual way of putting things. What he's actually trying to say is this. You have been privileged. You have had so much privilege. And because of that privilege, your responsibility is even greater. And that's true. I mean, there are many people, you know, who have not had the privileges, spiritually speaking, that we have had to hear God's word you know, to listen to the, the preaching of the gospel. We have to remember that's what this verse is telling us. Because of this, because we've been chosen, therefore I will punish you for all your sins. With privilege, there comes responsibility. Another way of putting it, to whom much is given, much shall be expected. And we need to bear that in mind. Let's move over now to the book of Obadiah, one of the shorter um, prophecies. Uh, The next couple of uh, books that we're going to look at uh, are slightly different in that the message that they they bring, uh, the prophets are not speaking to the nation of Israel. They're they're speaking to other nations. And uh, if you can see in Obadiah uh, verse 1... This is what the sovereign Lord says about Edom. Now the thing about Edom was they were the descendants of Jacob's brother Esau. And they were on the borders of of Israel. And the reason that Obadiah speaks against this nation is because of what they did on the day that Jerusalem fell. When Nebuchadnezzar came in, When the Babylonians destroyed Jerusalem and the people are carried off into exile, Edom was there. And now look look at what he says, verse 11. On the day, on that day, you stood aloof while strangers carried off his wealth and foreigners entered his gates and cast lots for Jerusalem. And you were like one of them. And you shouldn't have looked down on your brother in the day of his misfortune or rejoiced over the people of Judah in the day of their destruction. So God is indicting this people, Edom, this nation. He's rebuking them and says, you will be judged, Edom, as a nation. The reality of God's judgment because your brother was suffering. You stood aloof. You passed by on the other side and you disdained him and you mocked him and you rejoiced in the day that Jerusalem fell. You didn't lift a finger to help. You know, I think there's a principle there for us. It reminds us really of the Good Samaritan, doesn't it? And the, the people who passed by on the other side. 
They maybe didn't rejoice, but they passed by. It comes to all of us, and we hear the prophets speak to us about the danger of standing aloof. The danger of watching from the sidelines as things are going on and not doing anything to help. It's a challenge that comes to us all tonight, isn't there? Is there something that we are aware of? Has the Lord placed something on our hearts, something that has burdened us? Will we stand aloof or will we get involved? Obadiah speaks against that kind uh, of situation. Over to the book of Jonah. Uh, One of the better known uh, minor prophets. We did it recently uh, in the men's group uh, on Saturday mornings. Again, just to make the point that this is about a foreign power. It's not to Israel. It's, as you can see from the first few verses, it's about the great city of Nineveh. And of course, Nineveh is the capital of Assyria. And it's Assyria who first of all comes and exiles the northern kingdom and carries it away into captivity. Nineveh is the capital. Nineveh is the heart of, of that empire. And Jonah is sent to Nineveh. And he's sent to call them to repent. And uh, the point that we again and again were picking up on in, in the men's meeting is this, that although it bears Jonah's name, And Jonah's a pretty major figure, obviously, in the whole narrative. Uh, The book, fundamentally, is not really about Jonah. The book is about God and what God is like. The things that God does in all four chapters. And the big point is this, of course. God is concerned even about an evil city with evil people like Nineveh. That's how the whole book finishes off. The very last phrase of chapter 4. God is speaking and saying, Should I not be concerned about this great city? Jonah walks through it for several days. God says to them, Look at all these people who are not able to tell even their left hand from their right hand. And Jonah's worked up because of the gourd that you know, burns down and he's getting sunstroke. And God says, You're concerned about this. And shouldn't I be concerned about this people? And shouldn't you be concerned about this people and this city? It's a great book that unveils the mission heart of God to the lost, to the wicked lost of our world. That despite their condition, God's heart still goes out and God is concerned. This was a message to Israel. It's a message to us about what God is like as far as the lost are concerned. And of course it shows God's concern and God's patience with his erring prophet. You know, Jonah is not held up as a paragon of virtue. He runs away. He doesn't want to deliver the message that God gives to him. And God in his patience, verse number 1 of chapter 3, the word of the Lord comes to Jonah a second time. One of the great verses that explains God's patience and his long-suffering with his failing people. And, and God's word comes to us tonight, the second, the third, the fourth time, in his patience to try and bring us back into his service, maybe concerning ourselves having a mission heart for our world and for the nations that don't know our Lord Jesus Christ. 
Now what I'd like to do here is skip a book uh, and do that uh, purposely. Uh, and I'd like us to look at the book of Nahum next. And the reason I'm doing that is you'll see from verse 1 of chapter 1 that this oracle was concerning Nineveh. So Jonah was sent to Nineveh, a message of hope. The people turned to God and God had mercy upon them. But this book is also written to Nineveh. And this time it's a message uh, of judgment. Look at verse number 2. The Lord is a jealous and avenging God. The Lord takes vengeance and is filled with wrath. The Lord takes vengeance on his foes and maintains his wrath against his enemies. The Lord is slow to anger. We learn that from Jonah. And great in power. The Lord will not leave the guilty unpunished. And Nineveh was to be overwhelmingly destroyed. So much so that archaeologists almost debated for for centuries about whether Nineveh existed. Look at how it's put in verse 7 of chapter 1. One of the great verses uh, from the Minor Prophets, which again is quoted in our New Testament, Paul writing to Timothy. The second part of verse 7. The Lord is good, a refuge in times of trouble. And he cares for those who trust in him. The Lord knows those that trust in him. Now that's of enormous reassurance, isn't it? That the Lord knows those that are his. The Lord knows those who trust in him. But with an overwhelming flood, he will make an end of Nineveh and he will pursue his foes into darkness. So despite there being a temporary returning to the Lord, the wickedness of of Nineveh persisted and God, who is slow to anger, did not leave the guilty um, unpunished. So let's turn back to to Micah. And uh, we're back to Israel and Judah after that little excursion to some of the foreign foreign powers. Um, The book of Micah um, has uh, some very famous passages in it. Um, there, there are passages that talk about the hope of the future. I'd like just to point some of them out to you. Um, chapter 4, um, verse 1. In fact, if you look at verse 2, many nations will come and say, uh, come let us go up to the mountain of the Lord to the house of the God of Jacob. Uh, He will teach us his ways so that we might walk in his paths. Then down to uh, verse number three. They will beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will not take up sword against nation. Neither will they train for war anymore. Very famous words. In fact, I remember once on a holiday to Israel, going up uh, onto the Lebanon border. And and on the border, there was a great big monument. And uh, these words were placed on it. You know, the reality of the situation is, these words do not apply to our day and age. You know? Uh, Right at this point 
You know, will it ever be true that nations will never train for war anymore and that they'll beat their swords into plowshares? This will never take place until the Prince of Peace, Christ himself, returns. So we have to recognize that many of the prophecies, we'll come across some of them that uh, Micah makes, they have to do with the immediate future of their time, what was happening just round about the time they lived. Some had to do with the incarnation, the coming of the Messiah, but some extend beyond that. And here's just a little technical point that I find not just interesting, but in fact, it's very helpful for the interpretation of some of these passages. And it's this, that the plain reading, the plain reading of some of these things should be taken to help us understand that there will actually be a future for Israel as a nation. I mean, how else can you understand some of the things that are said here about the future spoken to Israel? You have to do some kind of mental gymnastics and spiritualize things away and make words mean something else. There will be a future for national Israel. And some of these, um, uh, some of these passages are actually referring to that. I won't say anything more about that. Um, let, me look, let me point uh, out for you some of the, the, the messianic uh, prophecies that, that Micah makes. Um, here's one about the crucifixion. Chapter 5, verse 1, halfway through that. They will strike Israel's ruler on the cheek with a rod. Here's one about the incarnation. But you, Bethlehem Ephrata. Though you're small among the clans of Judah, out of you will come for me one who will be ruler over Israel, whose origins are from of old, from ancient times. And the the priests knew about this, because this was the verse when Herod asked the question, you know, where's the king of the Jews going to be born? They they turned to Micah, and this is the verse that they read to Herod uh, at the time when they were looking uh, for uh, for the young child. Now let me uh, turn away from some of the prophecies relating to Christ to some of the real messages, the pointed messages that that, that Micah has to bring for us. Um, He talks about how how can people come before God? How how can we come before God? Chapter 6, verse 6. With what shall I come before the Lord and bow down before the exalted God? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings? With calves a year old, will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, with ten thousand rivers of oil? Shall I offer my firstborn son for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? He has showed you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you but to act justly and to love mercy? And to walk humbly with your God. You know, nothing can for sin atone. You know, thou must save and thou alone. That's the message. What could I bring, you know, to deal with the sin of my soul? Nothing. You must cling to Christ. And what does the Lord require of us today? He requires exactly the same thing. 
for us to act justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with our God. Now let's very quickly turn over to the book of Habakkuk. We're nearly there. Habakkuk is, uh, is, is confused. Um, chapter 1, verse 2. How long, O Lord, must I call for help, but you don't listen? How long will I cry out to you about violence, but you don't save? He's talking, verse 6, about the Babylonians, the ruthless and petulant people who are sweeping across the whole earth. And Habakkuk looks at that situation, and in particular how it relates to his own country, and he says, you know, I don't understand this. This, this violent, godless people, and you're using them. Uh, I don't understand any of this. And he's fearful of the whole situation. And uh, what he has to learn is a major truth that is emphasized uh, to us um, throughout the whole of the Scriptures. And it's this. Uh, chapter 2, verse number 4. One of the great verses of our Bible. But the righteous will live by his faith. Or the just will live by faith. Quoted new, uh, several times in our New Testament. The, the battle cry of the Reformation. You know, the just shall live by faith. And what Habakkuk is saying, you know, I don't understand what I'm seeing. But I know that as one of your just people, I need to live my life by faith. And there's a great expression of that, actually, as we go along um, in the book. And uh, if you go to the very last uh, few verses of the, the prophecy, there's this tremendous hymn, really, where Habakkuk says, and this is his expression of living by faith, though the, the fig tree doesn't blossom and there are no grapes on the vine, uh, though the olive crop fails and the fields produce no food and although there are no sheep in the pen and no cattle in the stalls, yet, despite all of that, yet I will rejoice in the Lord and I will be joyful in God my Savior. You know, And he describes himself just at the end there of his feet rather than slipping, being like the feet of deer. Uh, enabling to go on the heights. I saw one of these David Attenborough things, you know, but, but one of these mountain goats. It was a sheer cliff, you know, and there was just a, a small ledge, and this goat is making its way along the precipice safely, sure-footedly. God can make, Habakkuk says, my feet like that in difficult times, dangerous times. I need to live by faith, and that's what does it. That's what helps us in difficult times. That's what Habakkuk is saying to us. Uh, let me just give you a, a, a verse of, of real you know, reassurance from Zephaniah. Um, Zephaniah uh, in chapter 3 uh, and at verse 17 gives a, a description of the joy that God has in his people. It's good, good for us to remember that. You know, God is our heavenly father if we belong to him. And here is a verse that is a description of his care and concern over us. You know, the Lord your God is with you. And he's mighty to save. And he'll take great delight in you. 
He will quieten you with His love. He will rejoice over you with singing. You know, it's a, it's a picture of a, of a little baby who's, who's gurning, you know, who's crying and, 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 and is being settled down and quietened with the parent's love and who the parent is rejoicing over by, by singing a song. You know, God does that with His people. Such is the joy that He takes. And here's another great one down at verse 20. And He makes this promise. And I will bring you home. From, from that lost place in exile, one day he said, you're my child, and, and I'll bring you back home again. So wonderful words of reassurance. Now, just in closing, we, we come to the post-exile prophets. So the last three remaining, Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi, are prophets that gave their message after the exile. So they're back home again in their land. So you see that from Haggai chapter 1, in the year, verse 1, in the second year of King Darius, on the first day of the sixth month, the word of the Lord comes through the prophet Haggai to Zerubbabel, who was the governor, the son of Sheltiel, and to Joshua, who was the high priest. These were the guys that were bringing back the people, and they were trying to build things up again after the years of exile. But they had a message that was required, and they, met, they both worked together. You know, they were part of a team. They had, they had a, a slightly different emphasis. One was very blunt and direct. That's Haggai. Whereas Zechariah is a man of vision, you know. Uh, but they work complementarily together. Haggai, here is his message. You know, the people are saying, verse number two, it's not time yet to build the Lord's house. You know, it's not, not, not the right time. It's not the time to do that. And, and he challenges them. And he said, well, what about you? Is it, is it time for you to be living in your own paneled houses while God's house remains a ruin? You see, it's time enough to, to do your own things and to benefit your own lives and your own homes. But what about time to, to work for God and to give God the glory? And uh, down there in verse number uh, uh, 9, because of my house which remains a ruin, that's why I'm concerned while each of you is busy uh, with his own house. And, and they stir up the people. Um, and they stir them up to begin to work on the house of the Lord again. And he has to say to them in chapter 2 verse 3, it looks pretty pitiful, doesn't it? Who of you is left who saw this house in its former glory? And how does it look now? It looks nothing compared to the majesty of the initial temple. There's nothing. But God promises, verse number 9 of chapter 2, that the glory of this present house will be greater than the glory of the former house. And in this place, I will grant peace. And so the people are stirred up, and they begin to work again. And Zechariah, as we come into that, is part of the same message at the same time. Let me just give you a wee insight into one of his uh, visions. Chapter 4. You can see how it fits together. The vision of uh, two olive trees, you know, um, that are part of a lampstand. And because they are olive trees, there's a continuous supply of oil. So that the lamp never will run dry. It will always shine. Because the oil is always there. 
And the message, the interpretation of that vision is summed up in verse number 6 of chapter 4. This is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel. It's not by might and it's not by power, but it's by my spirit, says the Lord Almighty. You know, I will give you the resource that you can shine for me as you try to establish the kingdom again. Now, there are many messianic passages in Zechariah as well. So, for instance, if you went over uh, to chapter 9 and verse 9, this is the one that uh, was recorded when Christ rode into Jerusalem. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. See, your king comes to you, righteous and having salvation, gentle, riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. If you turn over to chapter 12 and verse 10, again, this refers to the future, but it indicates the way that the Messiah would die. I will pour out on the house of David, chapter 12, verse 10, and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace, and supplication, and they will look on me, the one that they have pierced, and they will mourn for him as one mourns for an only son. Chapter 13, verse 1. And on that day a fountain will be opened to the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to cleanse them from sin and from impurity. Chapter 13, verse 7. Is a tremendous verse that gives us insight into what happened upon the cross. Awake, O sword, against my shepherd, against the man who is close to me. Strike the shepherd, and the sheep will be scattered, and I will turn my hand against the little ones. And then finally, uh, the book of Malachi. The final voice in our Old Testament and after Malachi stops speaking, there are 400 years where a prophet never speaks again. 400 years, four centuries, and the word of God is not given until John the Baptist speaks and prepares the way and introduces Christ. And Malachi actually talks about that. I'm just going to point that one point out and finish and, and, and not say anything else actually about uh, the book of Malachi. So, for instance, chapter 3, verse 1. Malachi says, I will send my messenger who will prepare the way before me. Then suddenly, the Lord that you are seeking will come to his temple. The messenger of the covenant whom you desire will come, says the Lord Almighty. Two messengers. The messenger of the covenant is, is Christ, the Messiah. But one will prepare the way for him. And that's expanded on in chapter 4, verse number 5. See, I will send you the prophet Elijah. Now that's particularly mentioned in the Gospels before that great and dreadful day of the Lord comes. He'll turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers, or else I will come and strike the land with a curse. Isn't it interesting? The book of Genesis starts with the curse. The very last word of our Old Testament finishes with the idea of the curse. 400 empty years, but with the voice of all of these prophets 
still there on record for the people to take into account a Messiah is coming. And that's what we'll be looking at, God willing, in the, in the weeks to follow. So there we are, the message of these men. Challenge, rebuke, judgment, but also hope uh, and restoration. I hope, to some extent, we've just kind of given you a little bit of an appetite to, to look into these books a little bit more for yourself, as you can see the inspiration and the relevance of the messages that it brings to us. Now shall we pray. Lord, thank you for the wonderful riches of your word. Help us to take to heart the message of the prophets who speak to us today. Uh, we think of the, the, the sober nature of many of the things that they said. Help us to rend our hearts and not just our garments. And help us to uh, put the things of God first and not just our personal ambitions. Help us see the glory of Christ. So we commit ourselves to you. Help us to love your precious word and to see a Savior there as we ask in his name. Amen.